This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All right, uh, lots to talk about on the political front uh, as far as, well... I'm going to ask Peter Grafe, and, and we're asking you as well on Facebook and Twitter. Feel free to make your uh, thoughts known or send us a note at scottthompson at 900chml.com. Did you ever think you would, you would see a political party based on sex ed? Uh, to talk more about all of this and other things going on within the government, Peter Grafe is with us, professor of political science at McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, how are you today? Great, thanks. Did you ever think in your long, distinguished political science career that you would ever hear of a party uh, based on a sex ed curriculum? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I've seen a lot of weird parties. There have been marijuana parties, there have been prostitutes parties, but I hadn't expected a sex ed party. What are your thoughts on all of this? Well, I mean, I think uh, it, uh, students sometimes ask me, you know, why would you ever run in a, uh, an election if you don't have a chance of winning? And I think the, the case of parties like this uh, gives it a, a good example that elections are also about trying to put certain issues onto the agenda that the other parties have to respond to. Uh, and if you're able to organize a block of the electorate around a particular question, you can reward or punish parties based on whether they're responsive to that issue. So I think that's why we see this in this election. It's an attempt in a way to make life difficult for the Conservatives to say that if they uh, are going to uh, abandon uh, the idea of opposing the new sex ed curriculum, there may be some people who will not vote for them, and it will make it harder for them to elect their candidates. Of course, what we're talking about is uh, the riding of Niagara West Glambrook. Uh, this was a riding where we have just heard uh, that 19-year-old Sam Oosterhoff is the PC candidate uh, and got that nomination on a social conservative platform, including... Uh, rejigging the sex ed curriculum. So uh, obviously those people down there or some down there feel that he has sort of abandoned uh, their policy because uh, or to, to follow his own leader's policy. Uh, we, you know, he's obviously been quite silent. No, he hasn't said much about it at this point. Obviously this is a reaction that now he will change his decision. Is there enough in, uh, interest in this writing that perhaps this party could win? Uh, no, I mean, they don't have a chance to win, and I don't even know if they really would have a chance to play their spoiler role, because the Conservative Party is so strong in that riding. In some ways, if they're a spoiler, it's for the Christian Heritage Party that is often run there, given the sort of strong uh, core of social conservatism in that riding. Uh, we have this riding, uh, this new party coming from outside, where the candidate and leader of the party says she won't even appear in the riding or campaign at all. Uh, so in a way, uh, what they're doing is maybe more splitting the vote of the Christian Heritage Party than doing any real harm to the Conservatives. Uh, beyond the harm it does at the level of the province, where Patrick Brown is forced to talk about the sex ed curriculum, which I suspect he hasn't really wanted to do, uh, and, and this is kind of dogged the first week of this campaign, rather than making these by-elections a way to frame or get a bit of framing around the issue of, say, hydro rates or, or other aspects of criticism of the sitting Liberal government. Will he have to address this? Uh, well, I mean, he's had to address it all week, I think. Uh, I mean, I, I suspect uh, within a week it will have passed uh, as an issue, but at the moment it's a reminder to Ontarians that there's a division within the Conservative Party and that uh, it would seem that Patrick Brown uh, somewhat opportunistically enlisted uh, social conservatives in his run for leadership, mm -hmm. uh, uh, was willing to push letters to try and get uh, votes in that last Scarborough by-election uh, by promising to change the uh, curriculum, but when he saw that there might be a bigger price to pay for that, he quickly backtracked and claimed he would have nothing to do with it. And I think more to the point, it's not just saying nothing to do with it, but I mean, I don't think a lot of these parents are really upset by the sex ed curriculum per se, except that 
there's some recognition that there may be families other than heterosexual ones out there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's not just that Patrick Brown backtracked uh, on the sex ed curriculum. He said he wasn't going to be a party that was going to be closed to gay and lesbian couples. And so, you know, that's an even bigger uh, affront, if you like, to the people who are, who are really using the sex ed curriculum, I think, to express their uh, uneasiness with the social change around the question of uh, recognized family types. So do you think this is a flip-flop on Patrick Brown's part or just an opening of his mind? Uh, I would think it's a, a flip-flop. I don't think mine's open in the course of 48 hours. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think he... Or maybe he was feeling guilty before towing the other party line. Well, I mean, I think uh, Patrick Brown, uh, in, including his uh, willingness to be present at the Gay Pride Parade, uh, is trying to signal a, a generational shift in how the Ontario Conservative Party engages with some of these issues. So... I mean, it's quite clear to me that he has this longer-term uh, strategy. I think he felt that he could uh, uh, switch horses, if you like, rather quickly from uh, promising one thing to get elected as leader to shifting and pivoting to a different position for the Ontario Conservative Party. I mean, the, the danger of riding the tiger is that you may end up in its mouth, and I think that's where uh, Patrick hmm. Brown is at the moment in having to deal with uh, this unhappiness with his willingness to change. And, I mean, obviously it's a, a certain a smaller core of the Conservative Party who's upset with this specific issue, but I suspect there's other parts of the party saying, well, wait a second, if he's willing to just jettison uh, long-standing supporters and long-standing positions uh, because he thinks it's electorally uh, in his interest, what other Conservative policies are going to go by the wayside? So what is the reasoning behind launching such a party? And this is uh, being launched by an independent candidate who recently ran in, in the Scarborough by-election. So as you said, really has no connection to the, to the area whatsoever. Uh, is this just about getting this back into Patrick Brown's face? I mean, I think there's an aspect, uh, I mean, what motivates people to, you know, run these sorts of parties? You need to be driven to, you know, to uh, really tilt at windmills in this manner. So, I mean, I think part of it is that uh, for a certain core uh, of Ontarians, there's a real uh, significant and problematic change in the recognition of gays and lesbians in the public space. And I think that's one thing that's really motivating this party. And I think the other thing is a sense of betrayal in that they thought they had a political relay in the Conservative Party and at least some way to get their voices heard or to advance their agenda, and, and that was closed to them rather quickly. And so I think the other part is one of trying to make Patrick Brown feel uncomfortable and, and signal that sense of betrayal. Is the anti-sex movement that strong or just vocal? Uh, well, I think... Uh, I think it's because that I think vocal. This... Yeah, I mean, I, I think there is has been a capacity. I mean, they were able to show that they could get a large number of parents to keep their kids out of school at least for a day or two last year, in opposition to uh, you know in, in opposition to that program. I mean, I think part of their strength has been the the poor manner in which the Liberal government communicated what the changes were, mm. uh, and how in many ways they were quite minor and uh, far less radical than maybe we actually need in terms of updating a curriculum that was last updated in the 80s, given all the changes since then. So, uh, you know, in that, that kind of situation, I think people are always, I mean, it's a topic uh, that does, uh, you know, excite uh, all sorts of fears and concerns and uh, uncertainties, and so it's easy to play on people's relative ignorance about what's actually at play to say, wait a second, you know, the the government's trying to give your kids all these problematic ideas about, you know, sex and sexuality. Uh, so in that case, I think they have had a, a capacity to mobilize uh, a broader community. But uh, if it actually became an issue which was 
really debated and where the facts were put forward in a much more straightforward manner, we might see uh, less uh, popularity of that option and a kind of recognition that in some ways the curriculum doesn't look that different from when uh, I was going through uh, the schools you know, 30 years ago. Uh, so uh, on that note, are Ontarians, as they break this down, are they realizing that as they break down the sex ed curriculum? Are they realizing this is less about sex ed and more about homophobia and people who just don't like certain segments of the population? Uh, they might. I mean, I think there is a sort of impatience that uh, arises in some sectors, but I suspect for most uh, most Ontarians, uh, uh, one tiny part of the uh, public school curriculum uh, you know, it's not as important to them as to, well, whether their kids are getting reasonably good educations, whether the health care system's working, you know, how are the roads. I think uh, it probably ranks about 98 out of 108 issues in, you know, most Ontarians' thinking. So uh, I don't think it has a huge impact, although for a certain a small segment of voters, it will be something that will encourage them to go out and vote one way or another. And I think that's what this new party is trying to do, to say there are people for whom this is the number one issue. And if there's enough of them, if it's 1% or 2% of the electorate, well, that could cost the uh, Conservatives a number of races if there were tight races in the next election. And so it puts more pressure then on Patrick Brown to, if you like, nuance what he says to uh, remain more open to the idea of revisiting the curriculum. Uh, let's switch gears in a couple of minutes we have left. Uh, Glenn Tebow, Energy Minister, rejecting opposition demands that he steps down uh, pending... Uh, the uh, Sorbera uh, bribery case, this in, in, in regards to the Sudbury by-election in which uh, Tebow was an MP uh, for the NDP in Sudbury, wooed to come over for uh, and work for the Liberals and, and run in that riding. And then, of course, uh, Andrew Oliver being asked to step aside uh, when he had run for it in the past to make room for him. And as a result, uh, bribery charges ensue. Is this normal politics or is this, uh, is this, does this come Contravene the Elections Act. Well, I mean, well, I guess we'll have to see uh, what happens when they do the hearing. I mean, to date, though, uh, they've only charged Sorbera. They haven't said anything about Tebow. Uh, it does remind one a bit of the whole uh, Mike Duffy, uh, you know, is- issue about whether offering the bribe is fine and only taking it is the issue. Or exactly. What. Yeah. But, or uh, if, both, if both parties are in agreement, then everything's fine. But if one's upset, then it's a bribery case. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, so I, I think in a way, I mean, it's a bit like this Patrick Brown issue where uh, parties uh, play dirty, maybe not necessarily uh, illegal. Uh, they nevertheless have to face a certain extended public hearing. So I think in this case, uh, yeah, Tebow hasn't been charged, so there probably isn't a good case for him to have to step down. Uh, but the opposition uh, will use the fact that Sorbera was charged of offering him a bribe to uh, keep it in the spotlight and uh, tarnish the reputation of the party in place. So uh, whether he steps down and then they'd say, look, there's something really stinky here, or he doesn't step down and they say, well, there's something stinky, but he refuses to step down, uh, the liberals pay the price uh, as a result of of them trying to be a little too smart in that by-election in terms of trying to get uh, a popular local uh, candidate who had come close to winning last time to step down in order to or a coup against the NDP. And, uh, you know, it seemed clever at the time, I guess, but uh, it's cost them, I think, a fair bit of goodwill uh, and uh, has, gives them a tough, you know, they're playing defense as a result of this. Uh, so I don't think it's been that helpful for them in the long run. Does this happen more than we think it does? Uh, I think it happens a lot uh, in terms of inducing candidates to run. Uh, I mean, a lot of people don't want to run for office because it's a thankless job. That means giving up their existing position, 
they know what the public actually thinks of politicians. It's often not that flattering. And so in the process of trying to get uh, qualified people to run, uh, I think often party operatives will make suggestions about what, you know, what future they might have and why it might be more interesting than just going to sit on the back benches and clap like a seal whenever the premier gets up in question period. Right? So uh, I think it's, you know, it's fairly, so the question I think really is, was that all that was offered to uh, Mr. Thibault? The, I mean, it wouldn't be surprising to say if you come over, we're looking for skilled people to, you know, come and find their way into the cabinet. Was it that kind of inducement or was there something a bit more substantial, uh, which might be more of an affront to our democratic practice? That being said, when it comes to handing out portfolios, I'm not sure I would have wanted the energy file. Uh, no, no I don't not right that. now. No, it seems to be a fairly poisoned chalice. And uh, I'm, I'm a bit surprised, really, of the choice of Thibault for that. I mean, he's not someone with a long history in the Liberal Party. It's not clear that he is the most competent person on, that, on the set of benches where you'd probably want it in your best hands possible, or at least someone who is really good at, at messaging uh, and dealing with the constant barrage of criticism that comes forward. Uh, it is a bit of an odd choice to, to give it to Glenn Thibault, who... I mean, maybe hasn't been terrible, but it uh, doesn't strike me to be the, the strongest member of the team. He was a former broadcaster, so maybe they thought he could talk his way around it. I suppose. Uh, you know, it hasn't worked for Bob Bertina getting into the front benches, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a number of former broadcasters who do quite well in politics, but uh, as with any profession, uh, broadcasters have probably done better than academics, who have generally been very poor <laughs> as, uh, as, uh, And as what does that say about our system, Peter? <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, I think you need a certain kind of part, uh, personality to succeed in politics, and I think both in the academy and in broadcasting, uh, there's a tendency to have people with inflated egos who kind of rise to top positions, mm. and uh, it makes it harder for them to be team players. So there's some people who can make the transition, but in many cases, uh, it doesn't prepare you as well as, uh, say, being a lawyer uh, or you know working in uh, another organization where there's more compromise. Uh, and, yeah, a bit less uh, ego in the, in the system. Peter Graff has been with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. Peter, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. You're welcome. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. A lot of spying going on lately. No, it always goes on. It's just we hear about it now. Uh, and, of course, uh, with technology comes a whole different level of this game. Uh, Canada spies have, for almost a decade, kept analyzed data on people who pose no threat to national security illegally, allegedly. To talk more about all of this, David Hyde is with us, security consultant David Hyde and Associates. He is with us now. Hello, David. How are you today? Very good, Scott. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for uh, taking the time to join us here. Uh, put this in a layman's terms, David. Tell us what CSIS has been, is, has been up to. Well, Scott, CSIS, their mandate, obviously, is national security. And under that mandate, they're allowed to surveil people. I mean, they're really like a clandestine information-gathering intelligence agency. Okay, so they essentially go about their duties. And when they come across something that hits a certain uh, trigger point, that it's of interest to them, it could be a national security incident or an issue, suspected terrorism, other kinds of national security items, they have to get a judicial warrant, go to a judge, get a judicial warrant to surveil that person at any great degree, to get access possibly to their telephone records, access to banking information, IP addresses, you know, internet um, uh, movements, and these kind of things, Scott. So essentially what's happened in this case here that's just been reported 
or they've just been um, issued yesterday, although it was, ju- it was decided upon a month ago, but it took them a month to redact all the uh, information in the ruling, um, supposedly, so that's why it just was issued yesterday to the public. But what the judge found, the federal court judge, which is, of course, a, you know, a powerful court in this country, found that CSIS had been getting legal warrants to do surveillance on, let's say, certain individuals, and they did come by those warrants legally. But then anybody that that person had contact with, so let's say it was family, friends, employers, and whoever, whoever else happened to be in contact with them, they then got kind of hoovered up or vacuumed up mm. into, this, in, in, into this database. And the, the, info, the, mat, the metadata, which your listeners, Scott, will kind of probably know, is that higher-level data that, on one hand, seems quite innocuous. It's telephone numbers. It's Internet movements and activities. It's kind of you know, where people went and, 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 and the, the personal preferences, websites, this kind of thing. Um, CSIS has very powerful tools that can actually analyze that data and can tease out, you know, uh, the movements and tracking of people and other intrusions, I guess, into the lives of everyday people. So the judge's concern was not that CSIS um, got these warrants, but it was that they then went well beyond that. They gathered up loads more metadata information. They were allowed to collect that, but they were not allowed, Scott, to retain it. And what they did, they retained it for the last 10 years, unbeknownst to really anybody, parliamentarians, unbeknownst to the public, of course, and they have that powerful data set there to mine and use to find out more information about the people that might be associated with or family members of uh, suspected national security threats. So were they continuing to collect data from those external extra people or were they just not getting rid of the stuff that they had already collected? That's not that's part of the redacted portions from my understanding, Scott, of this ruling um, obviously, they collected information during the course of the surveillance, and in some mm-hmm. cases, that surveillance was ongoing at the time of the case. So, in some cases, they were very likely to have been continuing to vacuum up this metadata information over all of the associations and kind of communication connections from these people that were under under surveillance. Now, if one of these people left the country or passed away or this kind of thing, it's quite possible that the surveillance of all the other individuals, Scott, it, it could have stopped. Mm-hmm. But that's very nebulous in this ruling. It's very hard to tell. And look, the judge w- was very, very blunt and very, very clear. This is not the first time that the federal court has had to adjudicate uh, about CSIS overstepping its bounds in the court's view. And the judge was very, very harsh and said this is absolutely an overstep and this information has to be, you know, you, ca- you just can't use it that way. And obviously, CSIS has now come out very quickly. You've seen Ralph Goodale, the public safety minister, has come out very quickly to say, you know, we, we hear loud and clear and we will curtail these activities. So you're almost guilty by association. Well, to a certain degree, Scott. I mean, let's, let's not overstate it, too. I mean, mm-hmm. these people are not going to now be surveilled and followed right. from A to B. And they're not, you know, they're not cracking into phone records and looking at exactly, you know, every little minute detail. But again, they have this meta, these breadcrumbs, if you will. A good way to look at it is these are today's breadcrumbs of people's activities online on any means of real communication, whether it be a, a cell phone, whether it be a smartphone device, whether it be on the Internet. These metadata breadcrumbs can just show people's preferences, people's activities and behaviors and the kind of 
time people do things and, 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 and their routines, if you will. So like I said, if, if it's not mine, it's fairly innocuous, although it still has, is, is a powerful data set. But when they apply their data mining tools to it, suddenly it can show a very revealing amount of information, Scott, about people's everyday activities, and it does become very intrusive. So what is the answer here? Uh, obviously, they were initially allowed to do this legally, then went deeper than they uh, needed to go. Do you have to go by, go back and review these files and say, okay, these people are, per- are pertinent to the investigation, the other people aren't, so we have to erase those, we have to delete those? And that's what they're doing right now. Is, I mean, the, the, judge, the judge stopped short of ruling that they be deleted. But he certainly ruled that the information cannot be, uh, cannot continue to be collected and retained. Right. I think it's quite likely that that the information will either be deleted or, or rendered in such a way that it's almost impossible to access it without a warrant. So I think there's ways they can, you know, kind of control it. Um, you know, I guess lock down the barn. Now the horse is kind of bolted to a degree, so we can't go back to it again. But at the same time, many privacy advocates are pointing to the fact that Bill C-51, Scott, which your listeners may recall, was that bill that was kind of brought forward fairly quickly in the wake of the Ottawa shootings there at Parliament and that, when we were facing a higher level of terrorism threat and there was a lot of concern about national security. Um, A lot of people cried out at that point that this really didn't provide any oversight or minimal oversight over CSIS activities. Uh, And, and, you know, now we're seeing that... uh, that may be the case. And I think that now there's this new bill, uh, C-22, that's been brought forward. It's being reviewed now uh, in, in, in Parliament. And that is really to kind of bring in a lot more oversight over these national security agencies, um, a, you know, a select committee that would actually be looking over the activities of CSIS and actually would include the Canadian Board of Services. Because right now, Scott, the CBSA, the Board of Services, they are doing intelligence gathering, but they don't fall under any oversight really at all. So their activities aren't captured under the National Intelligence uh, Oversight Acts that are in place right now. So there is a need, I think, Scott, to improve some of this. And I believe it is in discussion right now at the uh, at the national level. Advocates of this practice say you need data in order to uh, data like this in order to see historical trends, in order to compare things. Is there any validity to that? Well, I think that there is some. I mean, I think that we know that, you know, um, intelligence agencies across the world, uh, so, you know, some countries have stricter rules. Uh, there's, it's very difficult to know exactly what's happening, Scott, because it's all protected information. But we know that various intelligence agencies are, are vacuuming up massive, massive amounts of, of this metadata, either to use it today or to use it one day. Now, on the one hand, yes, it can be intrusive into privacy, etc. Is it operationally valuable to police and intelligence agencies? Sure it is. So the trick is either they're not allowed to gather it, you know, unless there's a warrant, and that's the process that followed, or there is, there is an allowance to actually vacuum up some information that's deemed relevant in some way, but then it's locked away in a vault, and it can't be accessed by the everyday uh, operatives who will just go in and kind of trundle around and try and tease out uh, d- data from potentially innocent people, but it would actually be under certain threat conditions or criteria, or if national security threats reach a certain level, or if a certain subset of that data is determined to be very useful, that data could possibly be mined to try and tease out relevant information at a certain point in the future, Scott. How concerned should Canadians be about all this? I think it really depends, Scott, on your point of view. You know, we're all different, right? Some people are much more privacy 
um, kind of attuned. They really feel, um, you know, that it's an affront if any of their information exists on any government database. That kind of person should be concerned because it's likely that in the various touch points throughout their lives and going from day to day, that they're probably going to be included in something. There's, we have laws now on, you know, in various provinces on, on cyberbullying. There's bills that have been brought forward, for example, in Quebec. We've seen the Montreal police recently accused of, um, uh, and they have been actually, in the, you know, um, following journalists and, and tapping their communications and things uh, that we think uh, is under a, like a cyberbullying law that's probably being a little bit overused. So there's lots of potential for information to be vacuumed into these kind of um, these intelligence gathering uh, uh, situations. On the flip side, people that really aren't as concerned about that say, look, I'm law-abiding. I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm mm. not overly suspicious, and I'm not, you know, a threat to national security. So if, if my information exists somewhere and it's well protected and I'm not going to get singled out or wrongly accused, I'm not overly concerned about it. And it, I, it really depends, Scott, upon where you fall on the spectrum. This judge had to make a determination based on the legal parameters that exist in Canada. And under Canadian law, CSIS is not allowed to retain information on third-party or non-threat actors for any length of time without a warrant, and that's what they did. How do they move forward on this? How does this change things? Well, I mean, you saw the level of contrition from the director of CSIS, uh, you know, coming out very quickly yeah. um, on this, and obviously saying that uh, we thought that we could retain this, and we, we did tell the then uh, Minister of Public Safety, who, who actually had a very awkward interview the other day on, on the news and kind of essentially denied that that happened. But anyway, regardless of kind of where you point fingers, uh, they now have to adjust their operational use of this of this information. Um, what they said is that they will no longer be mining or using it at all, and they are now going to consider whether how they need to, to, to action it. Do they delete it? Do they lock it away somewhere and only a judicial warrant can allow access to it? Obviously, the government's going to have a say. Uh, the government's got a bit of a black eye on this, even though it was the conservatives that were in power when this uh, information collection started, Scott, the retention started. Uh, but I think that the government's going to wear this now today and, and, and may well be fairly heavy-handed with CSIS uh, in terms of um, t- dealing with this information and how they move forward. That was my next question, uh, David, was that obviously uh, uh, CSIS felt they were within the law doing this. And I know you don't want to get political on this, but was it OK with the last government, just not OK with this government? It's really hard to tell, Scott, because I don't think this government knew anything about it. I mean, and of course, we never know, Scott. The things that happen in the very upper excellence of government and intelligence and that kind of circles, we don't know. There's, you know, myriad levels of protection and sensitivity and things that are official and unofficial. And as, as everyone knows, you know, all the, some of this information is, is protected. But at the end of the day, um, you know, it, I, I think it's kind of hard to believe. I mean, the government's opened up now this review, international security. Bill C-22 has come forward. It looks like they want to have a candid conversation with Canadians uh, about the, what's a reasonable level of privacy versus intrusions upon privacy to protect national security in a modern age that we're in, where a lot of the activity that's terrorism-related occurs online, some of it in the dark web. It's getting more and more hard to track down the people that are involved in terrorism and national security threats. And, you know, the next time a big bomb, unfortunately, Scott, anywhere in the world goes bang, the first question is, what were the intelligence agencies doing? What was the government doing? Mm. Why weren't they collecting this information? Why weren't they protecting us? So it is a delicate balance. But if I had to get, I'm I'm not political, as you know, but I I would suspect that the conservatives did know about this. I find it hard to believe that there was no knowledge in all those years 
uh, of this program. But uh, at the same time, I don't know if the Liberals were aware of it. Obviously, a judge has now adjudicated and it's the Liberals that are going to have to deal with this mess right now. Uh, you brought up Montreal, and I was going to ask you about that in our closing minutes. Can you elaborate on what happened? How did uh, how were the phone records of these journalists uh, compromised, and and what how how did they get a judge to agree to this? And um, we're not going to know until the actual warrants that were um, obtained are released. They become kind of released into the public realm on November twenty fourth. So when that happens, we're going to know more. But right now, there's people that are you know, surmising that there's kind of one of two options, right, Scott? So just to, to review quickly what happened, so that the, the Montreal police were able to get a judicial warrant to wiretap uh, several journalists from Montreal pub- news publications, newspapers, um, and, uh, you know, um, uh, listen in on their communications, fo- you know, physically surveil them, follow them, um, get information on the people they were speaking to, and even, you know, a degree of possible intrusion into those people's data. I don't know how far yet, but, that, but the, obviously that, 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 that's the kind of picture. And journalists, as you know, have a special place in society. They're not supposed to be able to be surveilled as easily as members of the public. There's obviously a freedom of the press and these kind of things, Scott. So it looks like one of two things happened. There's a law in Quebec that deals with cyberbullying, or that applies in Quebec, sorry, that deals with cyberbullying. Um, and that law, at the time, there was a hue and cry because it allows some intrusions that may go further into um, following, uh, you know, get, getting warrants to do certain things under this expansive law. And it obviously is uh, very precautionary about the, the potential for cyberbullying. If the Montreal, this paper, was dealing with a, you know, a case like that and the police found a way to use that, kind of bend that law and use it to surveil the, the journalists, that's one potential. The other one is under the national security laws. If, if it's deemed that they were talking to people that were in the threat to national security, then it's possible that they could have got, you know, kind of brought into that national security Bill C-51 kind of realm. And again, Scott, all of this is being discussed right now uh, on a national scale. Um, and I believe, I believe that we're going to be set for a reset here because the bottom line is there is not enough oversight over our national intelligence and security apparatus uh, we don't need to tie their hands, Scott. I'm not on the, in favor of that. But we do need them to be accountable. And it, obviously, it's security-cleared judges that um, are able to review certain actions, as well as parliamentarians who meet, obviously, very high levels of security clearance, that are able to review the actions of, the, of these intelligence agencies and act as a check on on their intrusions into Canadians' privacy. I was watching the press conference with uh, the, uh, the brass at, at uh, Montreal, uh, or rather with the police in Montreal. They were talking about how they were looking for a leak, that there was they were concerned about a leak within the, the service. Had, had you heard anything about that? I'm not too sure, Scott. I mean, I, I didn't. I did hear that too. Uh, I think it's really until the warrant the warrants are released to the public. I said on on, on the twenty fourth of November, mm-hmm. that that information will become public. Um, so, like I said, it, it's it's if it is if it is to do with something like that, one it becomes hard pressed to see where the legal authority would come from. But evidently, a justice of the peace in Montreal saw that there was enough evidence for them to grant this type of surveillance. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see which aspect of the law and which aspect of which law seems to maybe have been extended here to allow the police that type of intrusion. And, and it, you know, many, many people, Scott, who follow this are saying, look, 
journalists should fall under a similar type of an arrangement as lawyers and, uh, and judges who you can't surveil and follow lawyers and judges. They have a higher level um, of kind of privacy protection than everyday citizens for a number of reasons. And many people believe that journalists should fall under that same kind of uh, realm because they have a right to gather information and deal with whistleblowers and these kind of things. And that's the world in which we live now, Scott, as you know. Has technology made these areas less clear? In other words, the laws just haven't kept up with what we are now able to do? Oh, in, in a major way. And this is really at the heart of the issue, Scott. I mean, the CSIS Act, for example, came out in 1984. In 84, there was really, you know, there weren't many CCTV cameras around, let alone yeah. the idea of the Internet and, and all the different levels of intrusion now and people carrying phones that tell, you know, if, if, if the right things are switched on, you can know exactly where everybody went, exactly what time, what they surfed, when they went places, when they got on their cell phone, who they spoke to. I mean, it, it just it is never ending. Mm-hmm. And many Canadians are oblivious to the fact that they can be, through even metadata, their activities and, and, and preferences and, and actions can be monitored in real time if, 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 you know, if somebody has permission or, or gains access to those breadcrumbs. So everything's changed, and the, and the laws, the judge said this in this recent ruling, Scott, that the laws really haven't kept pace with the technological changes in society. And so I think we're going to see this in, in terms of these very sensitive uh, balances between privacy and national security, for example. I believe we're going to see some opening of these laws. We're going to see some reframing. In some cases, there's expansion required to take in new technology mediums, Scott. In other ca- cases, there's circumscription required to make sure that, that you know, there's not overreach uh, by these um, you know, national um, you know, uh, agencies. We've only got about a minute left here, uh, David, but I want to ask you something that's really uh, been bothering me over the last week or, or a couple of days since Tuesday, since this horrific accident, or sorry, accident, murder happened at Abbotsford uh, High School where two girls were stabbed, uh, one fatally lost her life, the other one uh, still in hospital. Uh, there was a story the other day about how a video had actually been taken of this murder. And uh, despite the family and, and police saying, don't spread this, don't, don't post it, it, someone did, and it's gone viral. How do you balance someone's first reaction, uh, which is to pick up a, a device and start filming, as opposed to, I don't know, run for your life, do anything but pick up your phone? And some are saying, well, at least you have evidence for the police, but that doesn't justify posting it, does it? Well, not at all, Scott. And I mean, at the end of the day, given the way that the Internet works and given, I mean, you or I can go out right now, shoot a video and in re- essentially in real time, yeah. upload it onto a medium that can blast it out live on the Internet. And just look at some of the of the rioting in the States where you had, you know, uh, people that were you know, t- live live taping it. And it was actually we were watching it online. You can see every movement, what the police did, etc. So, you know, in that way, there's really no way to preclude people from doing that. Um, but the bottom line here is that we're, we now live in like a citizen journalism society, Scott, where people tend to pick up their phones partly to protect themselves, possibly, or protect others, and partly because it's just the done thing now. Um, yeah. So it, it, is, it is difficult. It can be very unsavory when in a situation like this, but it's difficult to know what the answer is, especially if the video has been released. If it hasn't been released, the police can sequester that, camp, that, that, that phone and they can say, look, you know, this is part of our investigation. But if it's already uploaded to the Internet, once it gets on there, 
it's very, very difficult to stop any type of circulation, Scott, unfortunately. David Hyde has been with us, security consultant, David Hyde and Associates. As always, David, fascinating. Thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. You too, Scott. Cheers. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. When foreign ownership rules for flights make trips cheaper in Canada. Uh, you know, many people complain about how much or how expensive it is to fly from one point in this prob or this country to another, and usually for not much more, you can fly to another country. You can fly across an ocean uh, for pretty much what you can fly from one end of this country to the other. Uh, the transportation minister says he will introduce legislation allow international companies to own up to 49% of an airline in Canada right now fly to Dublin, Ireland, non-direct, January 13th to January 20th, $930. To fly to St. John's, uh, Newfoundland, the price is around 817 So a little over $100 difference to fly to Newfoundland uh, versus Dublin, Ireland. To talk more about all of this, uh, Gabor Lukacs is with us, Air Passenger Rides Advocate, Face Group, Air Passenger Rights, and he is with us now. Hello, Gabor, how are you? Good. Good afternoon. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Uh, I appreciate this. Why is it that air travel in Canada seems to be so expensive? Is it lack of, com- of is it lack of competition? Lack of competition is really one of them. Uh, air Canada used to be a monopoly. Uh, now there is an Air Canada which is a duopoly, and uh, certainly the entry of um, what we hope uh, jetlines and airjet uh, are most welcome additions to uh, the Canadian landscape. And I look forward to seeing those uh, companies obtaining a license, as anybody is required in Canada, and beginning to offer flights to the public. Uh, at the same time, one should also be looking at the uh, airport um, tax uh, fee structure and the and the, the aviation taxation structure. And uh, I've seen, seen comments from that from, from WestJet, and I've it's one of the few times that I'm agreeing with an airline. Yes, those matters should also be considered and reviewed. I'm not saying necessarily change, but we should be honest with ourselves. Uh, what is happening? Why is it true that our airport fees higher than other similar uh, airports? Uh, where is the money going? Because I have concerns that some of the airport improvement fees are going to the wrong pockets. And uh, and whether from a point of view of the, the uh, works of the economy as a whole, it is better to pay for those innovations from perhaps uh, the central budget as opposed to taxing the actual passengers because of the increase to the tourism that it may cause. So you're saying this has as much to do with fees that are uh, that that airports are asking for as much as it is the airline prices? I, I'm not saying it's as much, but I'm saying that, that both uh, size should be considered and should be reviewed. On the lack of competition, there is no doubt that we are, have had serious issues. It is also yet to be seen how well uh, any of those companies are going to, to uh, survive. And um, that is a question of whether they will, whether, whether the current situation is a result of the, the uh, low population density of Canada, uh, because after all, we are very small in terms of, of population, yet we are spread over a very large geographic area, or whether there are untapped markets that those uh, new entrants will be able to to, uh, tap into and uh, remain profitable on on the long term. 
and therefore drive down the prices. Uh, my producer uh, did some looking around just before the show, and as I mentioned uh, in the preamble, uh, right now, January 13th to 20th, 9.30 to fly to Dublin, Ireland, St. John's, Newfoundland, 8.17. Should, should, is that, does that seem right? Um, it certainly that does not look right. One has to look at actually what portion is the airfare, what portions are the taxes. This mm-hmm. is what, what, what I would ask the producer to to consider, and, and, and I don't have the data right in front of me. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the the question is, is it the airfare which is so expensive, or are those the taxes which are so expensive? I would suspect that, that in the case of, uh, of those flights, actually the airfares are quite high. But uh, it's also a question of whether you're comparing a regular scheduled flight to Dublin mm-hmm. or some kind of so-called low-cost um, carrier, which on top of, of the flight bill may also charge you hundreds of for your baggage and another fifty dollars for your meal. And, and um, uh, you know, there have been some jokes about uh, Ryanair even wanting to charge people for going to the lavatory. Yeah. So, <laughs> Uh, obviously, we've heard that the airline business, it, 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 it can be pretty precarious, pretty unstable. The margins are very, very slim. Uh, are we fooling ourselves that we can do it any cheaper, or do you think we can? I, I, I would take that those statements about the margins being being very thin uh, with a grain of salt. Um, really? The, the airline industry has been making a lot of money uh, over the last year or two with lower uh, oil prices. Mm. and lower fuel prices, and also with ancillary revenue, uh, which which has been skyrocketing, um, starting from just baggage fees, which are, yeah. I understand currently even being challenged in Canada in courts about collusion between airlines of reducing the baggage fees. So uh, the, uh, how thin those margins are is, is, is something one should very carefully, very closely look at. Uh, you bring up you bring up a valid point because we always heard of that in the past, and I mean it. It seems that you know these airlines, the new ones, disappear as fast as they come on. And again, a lot of that used to be based on or was based on fuel prices. How have the low fuel prices over the last couple of years affected the aviation industry? My understanding is that that they have reached record profits because they kept the prices the same. They retained the fuel surcharge that they put on in uh, mm-hmm. early 2000s, but they just renamed them carrier surcharge now. But they um, have been now pocketing far bigger profits because the fuel doesn't cost as much as it used to. So with this new, uh, new announcement that um, the minister is going to allow up to 49% foreign ownership of airlines, who wants in? Who do you think will take advantage of this? That is a great question. Uh, we'll have to see, for example, who is going to invest in uh, in the Canada jet lines. Uh, my understanding is that they are going to be a public company, so their businesses, their finances will be very transparent in that regard. And uh, I'm very curious to see. I re- read uh, that in the case of Enerjet, some, uh, there have already been some uh, um, discussion about a specific uh, company being interested in investing money into them. The, the, it's really interesting to ask why there's no Canadian money wanting to go into those uh, airlines. Why only foreign investment uh, wants to, to go into this? Hmm. And, um, and, and I don't have a good answer. I'm, I'm not, I don't claim to be a, an expert on the business side 
of uh, could of that, that could that be just sheer numbers, Gabor? The fact that you know places like the United States, there's just more fish in the sea. Um, in in the U.S., certainly the population density affects uh, the, the prices because. Um, the, no, but I mean, even as far as people who may be interested, you asked a very interesting question saying, like, why aren't Canadian investors uh, buying into this? Why are we looking for foreign ownership? Uh, could it be that there's just more of them than there are Canadian investors? That's certainly a possibility. But um, my guess would be that if there is a big profit to be made somewhere, then then everybody would want to go there. So <laughs> I, 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 would be, I would be surprised uh, why Canadian investors would want to go accept the question of whether they have enough knowledge and understanding of the industry. Because there, there is, in order to be a successful investor, as I understand, you have to very much know the industry you're investing into. So it's not, it's not just like gambling, oh, I think it's going to work. You actually have to have expertise in the area to be able to assess how good the, the business plan of, of the uh, particular startup airline is. And while money may well be available in Canada, I'm not sure if there is sufficient expertise available by people who are not already connected to some of the airlines and have not already financial interest in some of those airlines uh, who are able to safely determine that those are good investments and make an informed decision. Is it a really good deal to get in? Uh, as you said, I mean, they, they seem to be turning record profits now. I think most would be surprised because we always hear that they're always hurting. Uh, so is it a good deal to get into something like this now? Getting into an airline is always always a very big risk, and it's a, it's always something difficult to do, because um, when you start an airline, you will be losing money. You yeah. will be losing money probably for the first year, uh, possibly for more than one year. So um, it is a very long-term investment, and it's also a question of what is uh, investors' uh, tolerance for risk for for possibly losing a lot of money. So what do you think will happen with this? Do you think that we'll all of a sudden see uh, in the next year or two a couple of new airlines popping up? Uh, I've, I've, I've heard just yesterday that uh, Jetlines wants to already begin flying in summer 2017, which bearing in my uh, six months uh, preparation period, is, it's, it's something I find realistic. I'm curious when Energet is going to announce it, when it's going to uh, begin flying. Uh, certainly on the short run, we are going to see some reduction in prices because even, even if some of those companies turn out to be unsuccessful, they will be around for a year or two uh, if they raise sufficient capital. And I'm sure that they will be raising sufficient capital because they know what they are doing and they will have to meet some stringent financial requirements with the Canadian Transportation Agency. So uh, on a short term, I expect some reduction in prices. Uh, the question is whether those airlines will be able to remain sustainable financially. I very much hope they will. Uh, and uh, if so, then then some of the, the lower prices may remain stable because uh, Air Canada budget will realize that they have no choice but to reduce prices. It is also a question of cost structure. Um, the, when, you, when you deal with a competition of a commodity like a flight, um, the the real question is, can who can who can offer the service for lower per, lower cost and therefore be more profitable at the same price? Because most prices are being matched even within you know five dollars value. Mm-hmm. The question is, 
how, how much is the profit margin? If you have company A, which for for whom uh, every uh, seat seat mile passenger seat mile costs five cents, very very unlikely. But another company which has, for each uh, passenger seat mile costs them ten cents, then the first company can offer lower prices and still be profitable. While if the second company wants to match it. They would be already losing money. Where do they land, Gabor? Like, I mean, we've heard so much about places like uh, Pearson and how much it costs, uh, you know, to, to fly in and out of there for from an airline standpoint. Uh, does this mean uh, more work for the secondary airports like, say, Hamilton? It is quite possible that will be the case. Um, I, I do recall uh, several Southern Ontario uh, cities being mentioned uh, in this context by um, the CEO of Jetlines when I was listening to the interview this morning. Um, so that is really a possibility. Uh, it remains to be seen, though, how much of that uh, traffic uh, is going to be Toronto-bound traffic and what is going to happen with people who say land in Hamilton but actually are Toronto-bound. Mm-hmm. Is, is there going to be a, an increase in um, train traffic or bus traffic? Because... Um, you you will you wonder whether buying a ticket say from uh, from um, Vancouver to Hamilton or Abbotsford to Hamilton plus bus ticket from Hamilton Toronto right. is going to be worthwhile. Not to mention your time. Mm-hmm. This these are variables that yet to be seen, and and I'm I would be very cautious to make speculations. One thing is sure that it will have some impact on the market, and 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 certainly uh, the Canadian market is strikes me as being ripe for being shaken up by new entrants who are lawfully operating in the airline business. Uh, you talked about how airlines are now, everything is a la carte, you know, and soon you may have to pay to use the lavatory and such. Uh, is that trend going to continue, or are we going to see that pendulum swing back? I would love to see the pendulum swing back a little bit, um, but uh, I'm not sure if it's going to happen anytime soon. Um, I'm not happy with things being so much a la carte because uh, of, of the reality of a passenger not having cash or the credit card not working and possibly the passenger not having to, to be hungry for an entire flight or mm. not being able to access services that they need. So uh, that is an area where I would hope to see the pendulum come back. But, uh, but it's, very, it's very hard to predict. Uh, at what point? At one point, you know, air travel was quite a luxury. There were only certain people that could afford it. Now, of course, everybody does it recreational, business for whatever, and it almost has now become a glorified bus service. Will we ever go back to the day, or is it just too expensive to be treated, uh, you know, like an airline passenger was twenty, thirty, forty years ago? I I would be surprised if if we went back to the state station at twenty, thirty years ago. Because the, the role of transportation by air in our society has significantly changed. Mm. I, I tend to agree with your assessment that it is, a, it is a, um, just a glorified uh, um, bus service, uh, with the difference, that, of course, that, that, the, that if things go wrong up when you are yeah. uh, you know, 40,000 feet yeah. in the air, they go very badly wrong. So you have mm-hmm. to have very high safety standards. Uh, and, and you cannot just, as the bus driver, on the side to stop at the side of the road because you want to puke. Yeah. So it, yeah. it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work the same way. It will never be the same exactly. Uh, but it kind of uh, VIP class treatment 
Um, that will not likely happen, nor I'm necessarily believing that it should be happening. What I would like to see is fair treatment for passengers, because when the airline messes up, then the passengers actually get compensated immediately, and there is significant penalties for airlines that break the rights of passengers. Uh, a pet peeve of me, of mine, when I travel, and I don't travel all that much, it's obviously most for, for pleasure, um, is the whole carry-on baggage thing. It seems now that we're charging for baggage, everyone is trying to take what they normally would have uh, put in a checked bag and tries to stuff it into something that would fit in an overhead compartment. You know, at one time, the overhead compartment would put a couple of things in, maybe a, a package, maybe your coat or whatever, but now it seems to be a solid luggage rack. How safe is that? I understand that, you know, if you can stick it all into a into a little uh, suitcase, not only is it is it cheaper, but of course you're on off the plane a lot faster, but do we have to do something about this? Do we have to somehow get a handle on it? Safety-wise, um, I'm not that concerned. Uh, I, I, I'm actually far more concerned about uh, about beverage cars getting loose on landing than than some of the baggage up there. Because if if you have a baggage properly stowed up uh, overhead and and, it, and the, the handy doors of that compartment is properly latched, it's very likely to open. And also, if you have a baggage in front of you, it's not likely to, to injure many people. Uh, it is more of a question of what happens in my baggage if I'm the last to get on, my, my carry-on, while other people have already brought on bigger pieces. And, and this, is one of the, this is one of the things that can actually create a pressure um, to, and, and can, can reverse the pendulum that we discussed uh, because it is creating problems for the airlines, too. We're dealing with passengers' baggage. We're dealing with conflicts that may arise about that. But it, it is it is hard hard to blame those passengers who decide to put their their stuff in a in a carry on yep. if they are able to. Uh, not only for financial reasons, but also because, as you said, they can get off the flight much faster. But if there is also financial incentive, so so if if it's not only that that I get off the flight faster, but actually. I won't have to pay. Hey, if I if I could do it, I would do it myself. I often carry yep. items like in a small emergency box that have a Caesars and so on, so that I cannot check it in. I, I have to check it. I cannot put it in a carry-on. But if I were care, traveling just with a t-shirt and a and, a, and you know a slippers, I would myself probably consider doing it just care, being being a carry-on. Yet from a from a rational point of view and possible cost for the airlines, perhaps the airlines should be offering passengers incentive for checking in their baggage. Hmm. What about size of seats? It, it seems that they're cramming more and more in. Uh, does that extra row of seats mean that much more money to the airline? Um, the, the size of the seats is a great concern to me because it's also a safety concern for passengers who are tall and or passengers who just don't move around enough, and it may increase the risk of deep vein thrombosis. Um, but to answer the question about money, yes, it does mean it does mean uh, something to the airlines. Obviously, otherwise they wouldn't be doing it. Um, just just think about it this way, and this is of course a very crude calculation. If you have an aircraft which can carry 200 passengers, and typically those aircraft carry only less than that, then then if you can put another row of uh, six seats, that means you are going to carry. Uh, 206 passengers. In other words, that's a 3% increase to your capacity. In reality, it would be more like 5 or 6%, uh, or possibly even more if you can cram in somehow two rows of seats. Um, when, when you look at some of the aircrafts that are, that, that, uh, you know, the, the Boeing, uh, 
ones, uh, the, the 737-400 ones. They have different configurations. In some configuration, you have only 156 seats. In other configuration, you can put in 186 or 187 seats when you really cram the seats. Mm. So it may, it may mean a quite significant um, difference, something to the tune of uh, 20%. Gabor Lukacs has been with us, Air Passenger Ride Advocate. The Facebook group is Air Passenger Rights, talking about foreign ownership and if that will make things cheaper for Canadians. Gabor, thanks very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you very much for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.